Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. On October 31st, 2000, the UN Security Council adopted Resolution 1325, which reaffirmed, quote, the important role of women in the prevention and resolution of conflicts and in peacebuilding, the importance of their equal participation and full involvement in all efforts for the maintenance and promotion of peace and security, and the need to increase their role in decision-making with regard to conflict prevention and resolution, close quote. Resolution 1325 helped create the Women in Peace and Security Program, or WPS. WPS has grown over the succeeding decades to link different governmental and non-governmental agencies in promoting better understanding of both the impact of international conflict on women and the role of women in security policymaking. As we approach the 20th anniversary of Resolution 1325, we at A Better Peace felt our listeners should learn more about WPS, its connection to the American defense establishment, and its possible work in the future. Our guest today, Ambassador Jean Maines, is deeply involved in these questions and has joined us today to discuss her work with WPS. Ambassador Maines has been, since October of 2019, civilian deputy to the commander and foreign policy advisor to United States Southern Command. She is responsible for overseeing U.S. Southcom's human rights and women, women, peace, and security programs, and at building trust and strengthening relations with foreign and interagency partners. Ambassador Maines previously served as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of El Salvador. She's a member of the Senior Foreign Service with the Department of State and has served under five presidents in her 27-year career. She's also served as Principal Deputy Coordinator for the Bureau of International Information Programs, Director of Resources for the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, as a Public Affairs Officer in, in Afghanistan, and as Consul General in the Azores among other postings. Ambassador Maines has a master's degree in international administration from American University and a Bachelor of Science in Foreign Policy from Liberty University in Virginia. Welcome to A Better Peace, Madam Ambassador. Great. Thank you for having me. So, Ambassador, we could start. um, How did you become involved with WPS? Well, you know, I've been involved in Women, Peace, and Security, known as WPS, my entire career. And I say that because Overall, throughout my career, we've looked at how can you make this world more safe and secure? Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to do that if 50% of the population is not included. So I've never really looked at it as separate. I've looked Mm -hmm. at it as an integral component of what we do in security. So if we want to improve security in the world, then women have to be a center component of that. And that's been throughout every job, whether it was in Syria, Afghanistan, El Salvador, They have to be at the heart of how we want to improve and work with host governments around those countries to improve security and improve peace around the world. Sure. Well, and and what is your uh, 
what is the role of WPS and the role of your work uh, specifically now that you're at Southcom rather than as an ambassador uh, in the Foreign Service? So when I arrived at Southcom, the decision was made right at the beginning to move that portfolio to the deputy commander position. And the reason for that is to make it central to everything we do. So not mm. a separate part of what we were doing, not a program, but integral. And so what does that mean? It means that every time Admiral Fowler, who's the combatant commander of U.S. Southern Command, and I travel to a country in the region across Central South America and the Caribbean, every key leader meeting, we raise this issue. And we raise this issue to see what each country is doing, how we can both learn from our partner countries and share experiences. So I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. We recently were in Colombia and we set up a meeting with 50 women of the Colombian army. And it was the end of the day and everybody was hot, tired, and they were grumbling. And it was, you know, we don't have time for this women's event. And I looked at them and I thought, you know, we just had an hour long tour of a warehouse. You can't tell me that we don't have time <laughs> to meet with these 50 women who have been waiting probably for two hours to meet with the head of the Colombian army who they've never met, as well as our combatant commander, as well as myself. We got in the room with a skeptical group, and then the room was electric. One by one, these women kept telling their stories of why they joined the Colombian army to improve their country, to improve their communities, to improve security, their trials, their triumphs. And the room was just on fire. And the energy level was so high that at one point I did look at my watch and I said, you know, actually, we really do need to go where the pilots are going to time out in terms of us getting on our airplane on for the way back. And the Colombian chief of the army didn't want to leave. He'd never met these women. He didn't even know they existed. And that's something in the military and in cultures where it's so rank conscious that he never would have interacted with this phenomenal group of women had we not insisted on it, on the agenda in that key leader engagement. And so that's a key point. When the United States leads, when we mm -hmm. put it on the agenda, when we signal that it's important, it matters. Because mm -hmm. it is a way then for us to communicate that to our allies, uh, to our partners, that if it matters to us, it should matter to them too. Absolutely. And and the U.S., you know, the U.S. still has a long way to go. I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we're not there yet. Let's be clear. When right. you look at the senior ranks of the military, we still have work to do, but it all it's work that we can all do together. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm curious because that particular uh, image of essentially the United States acting as a uh, uh, as a force to introduce the commander of the Colombian army to the women in his own service. Um, have uh, have there been any places that you visited that you feel like they were uh, already sort of at the the place the United States is, or perhaps even ahead of the United States when it comes to integrating women into uh, peace and security? Well, one good example is actually in Jamaica. Mm. And, and so they really have done a phenomenal job. And I say that because usually the barriers to fully integrating women, to fully taking advantage of the capabilities to make a country more secure are in different components. They're cultural barriers, they're institutional barriers, and then sometimes it's just practical barriers. Mm -hmm. And in looking at what the Jamaica chief of defense has done, he's actually looked at all three of those. So the systemic institutional recruitment mechanisms, promotion mechanisms, but then also very aware of why it's important to lead by example. 
And, and so I would say Jamaica is a prime example of a country that recognizes that they have to incorporate women into their security so that they can be more secure. And again, if you look around not only our hemisphere, but around the world, every chief of defense, every minister of security wants to be successful. And success looks like when you turn your country around and you make your country more secure. And so everybody's looking for how to do that. And the incorporation of women, there's no doubt that that gets people on that path to being a more secure country. Um, mm -hmm. In general, the population views women more credible. They view women more trustworthy. Usually when you incorporate women into an institution, it brings that level of trust that's so critical between a security force and a population. And so there are many reasons that it's in their own self-interest. If they want to be a successful person, a minister of defense, chief of defense, the incorporation of women is in fact a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. And I'm 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 fascinated by the by the way that you have, that you're approaching this question in the conversation. Something that uh, that came up in preparation for this is that it's often uh, perhaps it's a little too common that when when discussions of the relationship of women to security policy initially come up, it's to to bring up the the very real point that women are often the the victims of violence or the victims of of. Uh, of security policies going gone wrong, but to view women purely as victims in this process doesn't actually help the cause of women. Um, and it, it sounds to me as what you're saying is is the goal is to in, to include to recognize the the very real role that women can play in making policy as actors, not as not as passive victims or as uh, bystanders or uh, witnesses to what's going on. Absolutely, I'll give you an example of that. And we were looking at in El Salvador because it was the homicide capital of the world outside of war zone mm -hmm. and working with the Salvadoran government on how to improve security because that was leading to outward migration to the United States. So it was a security issue for the United States and for El Salvador. And we were collecting loads of data, which I firm believer in data, collecting data on the homicide rate, on extortion, on kidnapping, all sorts of levels of crime to see are we making a difference? Is the country getting better? And over a period of a year and a half, the homicide rate had dropped by half, half, 50%. But yet the perception was that security had not improved in the country. And so looking at that, it was where is the gap between public perception and the facts? Because if the homicide rate, as well as extortion, as well as other things had gotten better, why isn't the public convinced? So we went back to the data and in the data, we looked at where people feel most insecure and in particular women, where do women feel the most insecure? Public transportation. Hmm. When I say that, if there are any women listening to this right away, you know that that's absolutely correct. That you felt that feeling sitting at the bus stop with no light, or you're sitting at mm -hmm. the bus stop alone, or you're walking to the bus stop to your house at night and you feel unsafe. And when we went back and examined what we were doing in partnership on the military side and on the policing side with the government of El Salvador, we had not done a single initiative, not one, focused on public oh. transportation. We had missed it. And when I went back and looked at my own team to look at who was on that team where we were determining the priorities 
there was not a single woman. And I say uh, that because I am 100% convinced if there had been even just one woman as part of that working group determining the priorities, where to put the money to improve security, we would have caught that. And so that's the power of having women involved at every level. Interesting. And um, have, have, how have you watched the role of women change within the, within the Foreign Service even in, in the, over the course of your career as you moved up, up, the, uh, up the chain to become an ambassador yourself? It's definitely changed over time. I mean, I remember throughout my career, uh, I was always the, the youngest one in the room <laughs> and a woman. And, right. and so back in the day, you know, there were countries where they wouldn't send women because they thought, well, the host government won't deal with them. Mm-hmm. And so you would automatically be excluded from, you know, being sent to very high level assignments in certain countries because of that country's policy. And then we started changing that. We started sending people, women to Syria, to Saudi Arabia, to countries uh, where they might be not as forward leaning on, on women insisting that, no, this is the United States. This is our representative. And we'll send exactly the person that we think is is the best person. And so that definitely has changed. And it's definitely changed in terms of how you're viewed coming into a room. Mm-hmm. I think in general, uh, going through my career, I'd walk in a room and you were just underestimated. Uh, but then they quickly learned that that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so it definitely was an advantage at times to be underestimated. <laughs> I can I can understand that. That's right. Well, when you when you when you know what you can do, and it's just a matter of getting a chance to let them know too. Um, have you had the experience of walking into a room and have people uh, not expect you to be the ambassador? I would say absolutely, uh, and it's a it's an interesting dynamic when you're a couple. So my husband and I are very aware of of those types of biases against women in being in that position. And so we made the decision early on uh, where I would do most of my official events alone so mm. that they wouldn't go to him. Uh, because in, you know, in the beginning, the men would go to him and say, Hey, can you pass on this message to your wife? Mm-hmm. And my husband would say, uh, she's the ambassador. Why don't you just go over and talk to her? <laughs> and it's really not that complicated. <laughs> so, right. You know, so I think, you know, he would always refuse to sort of play that role of the message passer and force people to go up and approach me as the U.S. ambassador as a woman. Mm-hmm. I, 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 this is, it, it's a uh, subject all, all to itself, but I want to, uh, to get back to, to WPS, the, um, the way that you the way that you've been describing the work of WPS, so the work that you do within WPS that involves uh, sort of making sure that you know, as the uh, as the civilian advisor, making sure that these these issues related to women and to gender uh, roles are included in these conversations. Who are your direct uh, counterparties? Uh, you know, if you as the uh, advisor to Southcom Commander, when when you go on these uh, trips, do do other militaries have a similarly positioned civilian advisor, or do you find yourself interacting with uh, with foreign military officers? In most countries, we are in fact working with their minister of security and their chief of defense or minister mm-hmm. of defense. In the state side, we also work with the office of the secretary of defense in terms of policy, as well as the state department. But there's no doubt we're working with the host nations, ministers, and chiefs of defense. So I'll give Mm -hmm. an example with that. We had a Caribbean uh, 
chief of defense conference at Southcom maybe about six months ago. And we had a session on women, peace and security. And, and it was an interesting audience because not one of those Caribbean chiefs of defense is female. And mm-hmm. so it was all men in the room and, and it's the session right before lunch. So you can imagine everybody was really, do we have to do this? And so we got up and talked about it. And then, as I mentioned, the forward leaning Jamaica chief of defense, he stood up and said why it mattered and why it was making his country more secure and what he had done in terms of recruitment and, re- and retention. Then we headed into the lunch immediately following that, because there's nothing more powerful than seeing your peers leading the way. And then mm-hmm. you start to think, wow, maybe we should step up our game. Maybe we should try to be more successful. And in that sense, we got to the lunch and chief of defense after chief of defense wanted to share their stories after they heard from the chief of defense from Jamaica. So one chief of defense said, you know, I want you to know that in our last recruitment class, the top five recruits were women. Because I want you to know that. And I also want you to know when we recruit, we normally have about a 15 to 20% dropout rate. For women, the dropout rate is 0%. Because when a woman chooses this field, they are 110% committed and they will fight to the end to stay in. And so one by one, each chief of defense began, began sharing those stories But again, it was started by one of their peers having said, this is what we're doing to make our country more secure. (laughs) And so there's no doubt the convening power of the United States, the leading by example, that matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's uh, it it is the the question of who who's who acts as the icebreaker and who can pull things along is a fascinating social question uh, and in so many areas, but here in particular, I could see it. Do you have counterparts within the other uh, American uh, combatant commands around the world? Is there a, Are there people similarly positioned as you leading WPS in CENTCOM or NORTHCOM or any of the other combatant commands? So I believe U.S. Southern Command is the only one that's put this portfolio up with the civilian deputy commander. Mm-hmm. Each of the combatant commands and other places do have gender advisors, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was determined very early on to put it at the most senior leadership level for U.S. Southern Command because we thought it was that important. So we wanted it to be front and center in every conversation, and we wanted to make sure we highlighted it in those key leader engagements and across our area of operation in our Central South America and the Caribbean. So most combatant commands and agencies at this point have a gender advisor, mm-hmm. but it differs in terms of how they position that that uh, area of expertise and where they put it in their command. Interesting. Is that, as, as far as you know, is that because of the uh, particular personality of the uh, of the Southcom commander or of or of his? Uh, his deputy, his civilian deputy, that is you, or is, is there, is this a, is there a specific policy uh, decision that Southcom is a, is a place where these issues are especially important? It definitely was a decision by Admiral Fowler, the combatant mm-hmm. commander for U.S. Southern Command to put it at this leadership role, mm-hmm. similar to the way we do, we have an office of human rights, uh, mm-hmm. which is also forward leaning worldwide. And so I think it takes a senior leader to make it 
relevant. And so once we got that running space, I think Mm -hmm. we've shown to him over the last nine months, the real power there is in putting this at the forefront of the agenda and how it can really change the game on security, having Mm -hmm. women at the forefront. Right. Well, because that's I'm thinking it's similar to your discussion of the role of the Jamaican defense chief in uh, opening the eyes of his uh, his colleagues that, you know, Southcom's decision to do this and the the positive impact that it's having on relations within the area of responsibility. One would one would think or one would hope that uh, other commanders are watching and could perhaps take a lesson from Southcom on this. I hope so, too. And the other thing we're doing is really engaging on social media and other Mm -hmm. traditional media. So we have a policy where we're highlighting women's achievements on our social media handles. And so we do it very deliberately and consistently to showcase women who are becoming, maybe it's the new chief master sergeant of the Air Force, the first time Mm -hmm. that there's a female chief master sergeant in any of the services was just named. Or it's somebody in the hemisphere, who a woman who's attained a senior position. Again, making the invisible visible. So really elevating what women are doing, not only in the United States, but in the countries in the hemisphere. And again, people's take notice. I highlighted Mm -hmm. one woman on social media in Uruguay. And within 15 minutes, the head of public affairs for the military in Uruguay said, hey, I saw you highlighted this woman in our in our armed forces, we have others. Can you highlight them? <laughs> so, so then it gets to be a little bit of a competition, which I like. <laughs> this is well. This is what it should be, right? It should be encouraging everyone to try to uh, raise the bar um, higher. And so, do you get a feeling within Southcom that the uh, that the United States is partners? They, that there really is a kind of uh, you know, if the United States is making this a priority, then this is going to get their attention. Um, and does that does that mean? Uh, on the other side of the coin, that if a different Southcom commander had different priorities, that that would also send a message to American uh, partners in the region. There's no doubt that leadership matters, and mm-hmm. so I think as as the part of the leadership team with Admiral Fowler, you know, Southern Command, you know, we're in it to make the structural changes and try to move the bar far enough to where again people see that it's in their own self interest. So you as a chief of defense, you as a minister of security, you realize that if you want to be successful, the incorporation of women is essential at every level Mm -hmm. and everybody wants to be successful. So I think the point is to try and get people far enough along to realize this isn't a box checking exercise. Yes, it's the right thing to do, but it's also going to make your country more secure. Right. Well, what do you consider the biggest uh, the biggest challenge facing WPS as a program right now? Like what is the, what is the next big thing that you think needs to be done? I think part of it is, is not looking at it as a program, but Mm -hmm. look at it as a, just as policy, just as, again, anytime you look at a problem, how can you be successful and how can you achieve the end goal, which is to make our countries more safe and secure? And when you go back to that and you see how to do that, women have to be at the very foundation of that, Uh, particularly in the Western hemisphere where you have so many women who are single households, you have a high level of domestic violence, you have high outward migration rate. Again, taking it back to this is not a program. This is not Mm -hmm. an add-on. This is fundamental to a minister of security 
or chief of defense being successful in making their country more secure. So I think that's really the next step where it's just generally recognized. Mm -hmm. And I look at on social media when we highlight, you know, this is the first woman chief master sergeant, or this is the first woman to graduate from the Green Beret course, or this is the first woman. You know, I'm looking forward to the day when we get past the first, when we get past Mm -hmm. the fifth, when we get (laughs) past the 10th, and when it simply becomes unremarkable. Right. When it becomes unremarkable and we don't even have to highlight it or it's not even anything we notice, then I think we will have met the goal. Right. Well, and it is it is fascinating, right? Because the idea is, is that one wants to uh, be uh, as creative and as uh, and and as encouraging as possible to the point where where the encouragement is no longer necessary, right? That people simply adopt it as, uh, as part of the, uh, the, the water in which they move, let's say. Um, I am curious for you uh, as, uh, as POLAD, as a as political advisor to uh, U.S. Southcom, are these, are these positions uh, based on a, a term and rotation basis? Um, or uh, you know, what, is your, what, what, do you see, what do you see ahead for yourself? So we have a number of of foreign policy advisor positions across the world. And this really started, I want to say, about 15 or 20 years ago when we were really trying to take our two institutions, the Department of Defense and the Department of State, and try to figure out how we could work together more to advance foreign policy and to meet Mm -hmm. the mission. And we're fundamentally different institutions. We think differently, function differently, and now we have military attaches, military advisors that are embedded in the Department of State. And mm-hmm. we have foreign policy advisors from the State Department that are embedded across the Department of Defense, including the combatant commands, which is where I am. Mm-hmm. These positions in general, at this level, uh, the senior position is almost always a former ambassador mm-hmm. and really trying to integrate and make sure that we're doing the best for the people of the United States, that we're really looking at every aspect both the military and foreign policy. So what's next? Uh, Generally, these positions are two to three years. And so Mm -hmm. I'm thrilled to be in this position because I love looking at the regional trends and how Mm -hmm. we can structurally make a difference. And then after that, that, we'll see. Uh, Could be another ambassadorship, could be another role. Uh, We'll just see what's, what's out there. But right now, I'm fully committed at U.S. Southern Command and excited to be part of our team. Fair enough. I know that this has been, you, you happened to, to come on board in this past fall, just in time for the, uh, for the entire world to change around you. And so the kind of travel, the kind of, of face-to-face meetings with colleagues that would normally be part of your job have largely been put on hold, I imagine, since, uh, since March. Do you have a sense of when you will resume uh, traveling and meeting and doing the sort of uh, uh, regional diplomacy that is part of your job? Well, I will say since we've you know been under the COVID restrictions since about mid-March, I think the, at least for U.S. Southern Command, and I will say probably for the broader Department of Defense and Department of State, we've probably advanced technologically about 10 years and three months. <laughs> uh-huh. <I believe laughs> All it. because we've been, right? All because we've been forced to get people that are in my age group, you know, comfortable with all the new technology and figuring out a way to do these things in a secure way and to do our jobs and meet the mission. Mm -hmm. And so while while the in-person has stopped, we have really kept up all those key leader engagements virtually and and continue to do that on a daily basis. 
And so meetings with leaders in the Caribbean or Central America or individual ministers of defense and chiefs of defense, we're still doing that all virtually. The mm -hmm. other part that we've transitioned is we have what's called the Department of Defense has the Humanitarian Assistance Program. And we have really ramped that up since day one. So the commander has authority for $15,000 small-scale projects, which has now been up to $50,000 during the COVID environment. And that's to get basically first responder assistance on the ground. So PPE, medical supplies, all those things. Sure. In 70 days, we have done close to 200 projects across the hemisphere. So we have people working round the clock to partner with our, with our partners in the region and make sure that we're being that good faith partner, being that partner of choice to the countries where we have such good relationships. Interesting. I, I want to I end with a question of, of for you as a diplomat, uh, as a civilian, but from the State Department working within the Department of Defense. Um, when you explain or when you when you speak to colleagues in the Department of State about working within the Department of Defense, within the military, um, what is the one thing that you find yourself most needing to explain to civilians about working with the United States military? Okay, we could do a podcast just on that. Um, <laughs> I have to. Say, I, 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 I've always wanted to ask this question as a as a civilian employee of the United States Army. I've, 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 I'm always curious what people think about this. So what? So what I would you like say, to say it that? is it is the planning process. So if you look mm -hmm. at the State Department and the Department of Defense on a scale of zero to ten on planning, the State Department State Department is probably a two on planning, and the Defense Department is probably a twelve, and. <laughs> And so the Defense Department plans to plan, and it is, you know, an endless process to get to that action phase. And mm -hmm. so that's probably the hardest, the hardest thing to explain to uh, my Department of State colleagues. I've had the privilege to work with the military throughout my career uh, while I was in the Azores. We have mm -hmm. a large presence out there and as well as in sure. Afghanistan. And then in every embassy, there is a significant Department of Defense team. Uh, but that probably is the one, the planning process and just the, the, uh, what seem like endless meetings to get to an action point. <laughs> <laughs> this is interesting. Well, well, um, with that in mind, we planned to speak for about a half an hour and we have spoken for about a half an hour, Madam Ambassador. It's been a real pleasure to talk about this, to talk about your work with WPS. Thank you so much for joining us today on A Better Peace. Well, thanks for having me and always glad to participate. You bet. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always happy to hear from you. And please, after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, because of course you want to subscribe to A Better Peace, please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that helps others to find us as well. So we will see you here next time. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.